and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to find about, find out about the agent provocateur in Buffalo. Um, so, uh, uh, oh, and today's episode is brought to us by our friends at Hydrant. More about them in a little bit. So, um, I have I have thoughts. And um, I have issues. And as many listeners know, one of the big things I think about a lot is um, civil society, mediating institutions, little platoons, federalism, all that kind of stuff. And I can't keep having you all back here to talk about it. Um, so I have the next best thing who actually did some reporting on this and wrote a fantastic book on it and is a colleague of mine at the American Enterprise Institute. And what is your title at the Examiner now? I am a senior columnist. That sounds about right. Okay. Something. No longer Puba of editorial No longer stuff. an editor, no. Okay. Congratulations. Thanks be to God, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time and effort getting out of that racket, and now I've been dragged back in. Um, anyway, so, uh, first of all, Tim, welcome back. Love to see you. Great, thank um, you for having I me. This... I have been a poor man's uh, Ramesh Panuru and a poor man's Jonah Goldberg in the past, so poor man's Yuval Levin is a major upgrade for me. I it is, I will, I will say that. It is, is much improved. Um, um, so, I'm kind of serious about this point, though. Um, I've been really grappling with this defund the police thing. Mm-hmm. And as you know, well, there is this tendency for supporters of federalism and subsidiarity and localism and all these kinds of things to be in favor of it when the issue is something they support and against it when it isn't. So I think this is actually a pretty good test. Yeah. And no one's really talking about it in these terms. I think the hard version of defund the police or abolish the police is incandescently stupid. Yeah. And it's stupid for political reasons and for policy reasons. But if Minis- if Minneapolis wants to do it, why the hell not? Yeah. You know, so where do you come down on all this? Obviously, uh, one of the great things about federalism is the laboratory of democracy. And that if Minneapolis is going to uh, defund the police, I don't think they'll do it intelligently. But there could be some city council out there that's going to say, the police are currently doing things that or being asked to do things that they shouldn't be being asked to do. And we're leaning on the police to do something, provide some community need that should be provided through some other way. Um, mm-hmm. And that if the police are going to have their um, what they're tasked to do be narrowed, I think if that's done intelligently, that could really be a good thing. And and this is what I, I put out on Twitter after reading some of the people defending defund the police. They said uh, it was Radley Balco, who is a writer, writes about the militarization of police. And he said, in a lot of places, when a bunch of churches joined together into being a anti-violence force, that brought violence down a lot more than putting cops on every corner. And suddenly I realized, wait a second, of course that's right. Of course churches right. and community groups and that sort of thing are supposed to be the ones who can be the best at bringing down violence. And so if defund isn't just some temper tantrum budget cut thing, but is actually saying, okay, while we defund these, we're going to empower community groups 
or lean to them or whatever, make it clear that it's their job to reduce violence, then it could uh, it could be like a conservative victory pushed by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of how I come down on it as well. And again, part of the problem is um, there's so much Mott and Bailey BS going on here where the, the protesters say, no, we really mean it, abolish the police. And then you actually start pressing him on it. And it's, yeah. well, we mean, you know, reducing this and diverting funding to that and all that kind of stuff. And I think the people who want to make the case for abolishing police should make the case for abolishing police. But the Democrats are idiots if they're going to use the rhetoric without actually meaning that's what they mean, because it's just going to scare away more voters than it attracts. The, so here's one of the problems with that model, which I'm sympathetic to. Um, I listen to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which is mm-hmm. hit or miss often, and I've yet to figure out why that Barbaro guy has to whisper the entire <laughs> time. Um, it's like he's recording a podcast in a movie theater and doesn't want to bother the people next to him. But anyway, uh, he talked to this New York Times reporter who has been covering all of this stuff, and the guy's clearly sympathetic to you know, the abolish of police stuff, and he's trying to put a sympathetic but still repertorial gloss. He wasn't trying to be an activist. And he pointed out to one of these proponents of this, he says, you know, look, you know, local citizens groups, militias, however you want to describe it, um, isn't that how you get Trayvon Martin? <laughs> and and the reporter's like, look, I have dreadlocks. I'm a black guy. And if we start setting up this model where the locals get to police who comes in or who is suspicious, that is, I mean, there's a reason why you create a professionally trained police force to avoid local groups mm-hmm. being jackasses, yeah. right? I mean, so there's a problem there. Yeah, I mean, it's, so a lot of this goes back to a, a real sticky problem of um, there's a lot of people will when I, when I wrote my book. Am I allowed to say my book title now, Jonah? And tell absolutely. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't I realize yeah. I hadn't said when it. I, when as I, many I, times as you like. When I wrote Alienated America available wherever books are sold. Um, the There was sort of this Rousseauian, um, very small minority that would respond and say, actually, community is bad. And <laughs> what they meant by it was, and I talk about it in my book, where a couple of real tight-knit communities I look at, one of them, Oostburg, Wisconsin, they tried to keep out, they tried to bar through law an Islamic center from opening up. A guy bought property right. And wanted to turn it into the Islamic center of greater Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Um, and the, this great tight-knit community built around these Dutch churches just said, this is an anti-Christian thing, and we're going to try to keep it out. Or Fishtown, right. Pennsylvania, uh, the Philadelphia neighborhood, um, where sort of the social cohesion brought about by the churches and you had the Polish church and the Irish church and the public schools and the little leagues and the swim clubs, they tried to keep out black people and gay people and Hispanic people. Um, and so when we look at instances of little platoons and strong cohesion, they're, they're very close to, they often are sort of exclusionary. Anytime you're saying we need to come together, any us implies a them. Right. And so that's the real tough thing. I think America has a solution to it, which is that you belong to multiple things. You're not just a fish towner, you're a Philadelphia and you're you root for the Eagles 
you know, not saying that that's a good thing, but you have other things that unite you with all sorts of people, hopefully across race, across religion and all that sort of stuff. Um, and if we, as long as our identity is drawn from multiple sources, we're not necessarily going to be as insular. Um, so that's sort of the bigger problem there, though, is that um, cohesion and insularity can go together. I think we generally have the opposite problem, though, in, in the U.S., yeah, which yeah, is yeah. that we don't have the human level um, cohesion and we have the opposite. So speaking of the, the police, um, for the last decade or so, there have been a, a push for free range parenting in reaction to um, uh, you know, parents being arrested because they let their kids play at a playground unattended, etc. And sometimes these stories would come out and somebody called the cops saying, I see a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old unattended. All the right. cops. And then I remember listening on my local radio here in D.C., these callers calling in and saying, those busybody adults need to mind their own business. And I thought, neither of these is the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, So that's the problem, is that we have called the police because there's some 10-year-old on the playground without his dad, and ignore your neighbors because it's not your business. Um, and so I do think that sort of, yeah, there could be an extreme of local militias and George Zimmerman's walking around and, and, and replacing the police force. I do think that will happen if you really defund the police. Sure. But if you say, if you get together with the police and the police say, you know what we would rather not do <laughs> are these things. Yeah. And we would rather people who really know the neighbors do these things. Um, and, and it's subsidiarity. The Catholic word basically doesn't mean everything should be done on a super local level. It means for every task, for every job, there's an appropriate level where it's carried out. And if, if part of defund the police becomes, let's move more things to the human local voluntary level. Uh, I, on net, that would be good. I don't think we're too close to the point where we have roving bands of, of George Zimmerman vigilantes policing the street. No, and, and I mean, I think, and his point and mine would be not that um, every town has its own fascisti mm -hmm. <laughs> keeping out, you know, uh, people, but that would happen uh, to some extent if you actually rep got rid of the police. But just that, um, you know, when you have publicly accountable officers, and we can get to the union stuff in a second, yeah. and their lack of accountability— in, at least technically, police forces are accountable to politicians, they're accountable to voters, they're accountable to the law, um, and they are trained in a way that reflects that. If you now have, like, rich suburbs basically saying, okay, you've gotten rid of the official police and we're going to have to do our own private security, and there's something like three or four times more private security in this country than there are paid officers, sworn officers already, um, their loyalties, their training is not necessarily going to reflect yeah. the highest, best understanding of policing a diverse community. It's going to be, this is our stuff. You're going to protect it, you know, and you're going to protect our property values. And that that could go wrong in all sorts of bad so, ways. Can, can I talk about what I've seen at some of the sort of leftist site protests I've been at since Occupy Wall Street? So Occupy Wall Street, these protests at the White House, um, you see these like... Um, organic, voluntary things pop up that replace either businesses or public services. Um, yeah. 
So you, you will always see people dressed up in like medic outfits, like at all of these protests. There's somebody with red duct tape, uh, you know, red cross crosses on them. Um, hopefully they have some medical training and not just a roll of red duct tape. But the uh, you see so you see that. And then you see sometimes enforcers like I've seen big guys who thought their job was to stop idiots from throwing stuff at the cops. I've mm-hmm. seen um, uh, in one of these situations uh, where somebody drove a car into the protesters in, in this last week, uh, there was sort of a, an effort that at first looks like a mob, but then you realize like the effort is literally to do policing on this guy right. who was violent, not beat the crap out of him, but detain him and get him out of his car and make sure he can't drive it anymore. And so the irony is <laughs> what our libertarian friends have been talking about and dreaming about, I've seen in all these and Occupy Wall Street, you know, there there were people who were like, okay, I'm security and I'm and then they appoint somebody to be sanitation and they appoint somebody. So they're building these states from the the, the mm-hmm. ground up. And so people have been through that since Occupy, who what they love is not necessarily just the shape of the political system they view, but being part of building it, get to do it on a little, little level. Yeah. Now we, we can make fun of them and, and some of them deserve uh, some sort of mockery. But on another level, I see what they're doing is trying to be citizens and, and build things up towards a, a better society. And so sometimes they take it into their own hands. And obviously that can yeah. go badly. I, I like that spontaneous order stuff. I do think that there's a little bit of a, apples and oranges thing there because there's one thing about the ecstasy of of a protest movement and there's another thing about oh crap it's tuesday in february and i'm the volunteer community policing officer but we don't want to call it policing and i got to get out of bed and go do these things you know there's a yeah there's a different sociology there but i don't know it, it just it seems to me that they're the the about the, the the at the end of the day, I haven't seen anybody explain like what like what do you do about the homicide division? Yeah, right. In the um uh in the the New York Times the Daily podcast, the reporter's asking some woman about who's in favor of abolishing the police, and she's like, "So what about like when somebody's murdered?" and She's like, well, I'll just be honest with you. And kudos to her for being honest. We haven't really thought all of this through yet. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, I, this is one of the things that I hate about populist politics is, is that you you want the conclusion before you've made the argument. And yeah. like, and people say, you don't, and whenever I criticize populism, people say, well, you don't understand. People are really angry. And I was like, okay, well, when was the last time you made a really great, complicated <laughs> decision when you were really angry, you know? Um, and... So the other day, like the police function, like I, I, if they want to recall it, recast it as reinventing the police or recasting the police, whatever, there's some conversation we could have, right? But like civilizations that don't find, if there's not a role for the state in tracking down murderers yeah, um, and rapists, because you don't want organically, spo- spontaneously organic yeah. groups <laughs> to track down rapists and child murderers, you know, uh, then the police function has to exist, whether we call it that. Well, or not. and did you see what happened? 
here in Montgomery County, Maryland with the, the bicyclists. Um, yeah. So there's yeah. this horrible video of this guy on a bike gets really triggered by these kids putting up, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter or some posters like that. Um, and so he accosts these kids at one point, sort of violently grabbing um, papers out of the hands of one kid. Um before riding off and he kind of thrusts his bike at them and it was a really ugly scene. And so a couple big accounts on Twitter posted the video with snapshots of a close up on this guy's face and said, Twitter, do your thing. And Twitter did its thing and falsely <laughs> accused two different Bethesda or Montgomery County men of uh, being the assailant. And um, they got uh, death threats, their house got stalked. One of them was a retired police officer whose son is currently a police officer, and they started going after him. This the, the current police officer, the son of the one of the falsely accused guys, just had just pulled a, uh, a a black Muslim woman out of a burning car, risking his own life, and then like <laughs> almost comes home to find out that he is an anti BLM assaulter of children, <laughs> or that his dad is. Uh, and both of those guys who who they proved it was. Um, we're totally innocent and the police, the professional people whose job it is to like, yeah. who have the tools to do this, um, found the guy. So that's a great example of what, uh, what mob justice in 20 or, you know, uh, I guess you don't even have to say mob justice, grassroots justice in 21st century America would be like. So the other thing that is frustrating me, so I, again, I am open, you're open to some sort of let a thousand flowers bloom on this, even though there terrible mistakes are going to be made. Um, and then you have the other side of it, which is all of my friends who used to claim that they love federalism don't seem to be bothered that the president of the United States is saying, we're not going to let anybody defund the police mm-hmm. when, Unless you're aware of something, I mean, I'm sure there are like federal matching funds and grant money that yeah. they have leverage over. But the president of the United States has nothing to do with the Sheboygan Police Department. No, and right? I, I mean, mean, he could uh, theoretically defund them a little bit. They, you know, they get free or discount tanks, um, <laughs> telling one of these places they're not going to get discount military uh, hardware. Is not exactly so. He's going to stop. He's going to stop them from defunding the police by defunding yeah. the police. But the bigger the bigger issue is that sort of procedural, the procedural parts of conservatism, whether it be federalism or constitutional limits or separation on powers, those don't really have great purchase outside of the circle of the people you and I, you know, sit in. Outside of this podcast, basically. (laughs) Outside of a podcast, outside of AEI, outside of the editorial board of the Washington Examiner, like even most conservative journalists I know, um, if they're not actual you know, writing about these issues, their their federalism drop. It's just it's just not an inspiring thing to hold on to. However mm-hmm. much our our friends at these various institutions think, if more people read the Constitution, they'll be you know inspired. It's it's not that inspired. The Tenth Amendment doesn't like get the blood boiling. Like nobody, you wouldn't have had you know, kings and, and generals speaking of, of the separation of powers. And so the idea that something is bad and Trump is on the side of opposing that bad thing, that seems good to most people. And so uh, this is one reason that there's been such a disconnect on the 
on the Trump question between the pointy-headed elites and the average conservative base is that a big part of what we don't like is that he treats the federal government like it's his own small business. Mm-hmm. And to a lot of people, that seems natural and good. And what's wrong with the federal government is that it doesn't act like its own small business. So uh, I, it's a, and the upside is that Trump doesn't actually execute. Like he do, He's not an authoritarian, despite the right. way he talks and maybe what he wants to be. So he's not going, he doesn't have power to flex over um, a town that wants to defund its police or, or, or reshape it. But ultimately, on, on, on this question, the, what I get worried is people who say, when we defund the police, this will happen. What the reason you and I are conservatives is because we know that if you make a dramatic change to a complex system, something unexpected will happen and it will probably be bad. Right. Which, again, is why federalism is good because that bad thing can happen in Minneapolis and then St. Paul can learn from it, et cetera. Right. It contains things. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like the way the, um, those chambers on the Titanic were supposed to work. <laughs> <laughs> Where like, like water wasn't supposed to cascade into all four of them and make it sink. It was like, if, if, if Sheboygan screws up and does something terrible, then everyone could say, can point at it like, like Nelson from The Simpsons and say, ha ha, you screwed up and not do that, yeah. right? Um, but, uh, so, work with me here. I mean, you're more, you've always been more libertarian than me. You've also also been more um, religious than me. And um, I, you know, I used to have this big argument, you know, it's a big part of my first book, Liberal Fascism, is that, this idea that the extreme right wing and the extreme left wing don't meet, which is like this sort of classic vital center, also Hannah Arendt yeah. understanding is that, you know, you get some poli sci professor and they say, look, I'm not a right winger or a left winger because, and besides at the extremes, there's no difference between the two. And, and the, there's a, there's a, there's in some respects, that's what, Tocqueville would describe as a clear but false idea mm-hmm. um, in the Ameri- at least in the Anglo-American tradition. But in European tradition, sure, that's kind of true, right? I mean, you have the extremism of the left and extremism of the right. They look really similar. I mean, there are some differences. But, um, but if you're a classical liberal and you believe in limited government and all that kind of stuff, taking that to an extreme doesn't – you can't get to authoritarianism. There's no exit on that route. But if what you're saying is right – that basically most conservatives don't actually care about the procedures, right? They don't really care about federalism. They don't really care about the constitutional stuff. Um, they don't really care about, uh, you know, separated powers and delegated authority and all of these We're various not talking things. about the most, you know, Washington Examiner, National Review writer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, but as a conservative just a, Facebook friend, yeah. Yeah, and if that's the case, though, um, that really does mess up at least my schema because mm-hmm. um, it means that that conservatism in the sense that we understand it, which is broadly speaking, the conservation of a liberal political tradition in the classical liberal sense. Um, and we can argue about where on some spectrum, the trade-offs between liberty and order and freedom and virtue and all those things are. But we basically agree that that's what Amer- Anglo-American conservatism is. If that's not what it is for rank and file normal conservatives, and it's just my team versus their team, then 
then it is true that the further right you go, the more indistinguishable you look from the left. It's just tribalism from my side versus tribalism from your side. I think that's right. Um, and I mean, not just tribalism. There are ideas sort of embedded in the right wing mind and the left wing mind and Jonathan Haidt and um, uh, what was his, uh, the righteous mind. Um, yeah, yeah, righteous mind. The righteous mind uh, makes it clear that a lot of the forms are the same, that there's a sense of the sacred, there's a sense of a worry about desecration, there's a sense of equality, um, and the way that th- those things manifest themselves very differently in sort of a conservative mind and a, and a liberal mind. But the things that we think of as uh, sort of the, the guardrails that conservatism erects uh, are not held very dear and sacred by most people who would generally be conservative. Um, and, you know, the, the one way I, des- I think of conservatives, um, you think of a sense of fairness. And the, what, do you, what unfairness do you get upset about? And sometimes mm-hmm. I think I want my job for years was to get them more upset about Boeing improperly getting rich <laughs> than they are about a welfare queen getting too many checks. Um, but the reason I it was your white whale. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the way, I got to attend a protest right outside the Export Import Bank of the United States, and people were yelling and screaming and really angry. So if I just kind of squinted for a second, I could pretend. <laughs> what might have been <laughs> my own dream populist America? Um, but uh, but so but then liberals get upset about a fairness of there shouldn't be billionaires. And so there are, there are ideological or at least mental or psychological differences on the left and the right. It's not just what team you're on. Um, but I do think that the, the procedural things that we will, uh, talk about, and then the occasional talk of, you know, autonomy and that sort of thing on the left, all those things will go out the window for sort of your side winning. And it's not just extremists. It's not just Trump. It's, it's most voters. I mean, given a choice um, between, you know, a conservatism that's dialed back by federalism, et cetera, et cetera, or conservatism that's unleashed, most conservative voters would want it unleashed. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm, we can revisit this because I have to go cut myself. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, so before we get off of this stuff, um, what was the most interesting thing you saw while covering the the, the protests. protests down there at Lafayette Square. So first of all, I didn't get to be part of any fun violence. I was on the other side of the park um, where they just cleared the, the crowd when Trump did his photo op with just sort of some rough shoving, some eggs thrown back at them, and that was it. There was no tear gas or anything like that, and I didn't stick around for the, the looting. Um, mm mm-hmm. I did see a handful of, you know, skinny white guys uh, lecturing black police officers on the, the truth of systemic racism. And I saw a lot. They of, love that. Yeah, I saw a lot of that. Um, I got a little bit of an insight into um, how the riots develop. If I were to say around curfew time, so it's 7 p.m., it's still light out, gorgeous night. About a third of the crowd is passive protesters slash tourists. They'll mm-hmm. kneel when told to kneel. They'll join in some of the chants. They didn't bring signs, etc. 
We're all individuals. Yeah. <laughs> um, almost half of them, I'd say, were there, were chanting, were cheering, brought signs, had like set aside a big part of their day to do this. Um, then I'd say about 8% were like angry protesters. These were the ones who would go mm. up and shout at the cops in anger. Um, you know, and half of it was just hating cops. Half of it was a plea. Like I am endangered by being a black man in the United States. A cop killed my brother, like real angry protesters. And then about 2% were just, um, I don't know what the, the FCC regulation of this is, but let me say idiots. We're just idiots who are there <laughs> to cause trouble. Um, yeah. they were, uh, the ones who brought their cartons of eggs. The ones yeah. who would go up to the people, nice people hanging out, handing out bottles of water and grab four of them to throw at the police. They were the ones who would look for a police officer who was not in a group but was alone and surround him to at least menace him. Um, and I, again, I never saw violence uh, at the police more than egg throwing. And I never saw any egregious uh, violence by police. Um, but that, that nature, of the you could see how that 2% could turn that 8% into a pretty bad riot yeah, yeah, yeah. force. Um, thankfully, w when I was there, that, that never happened. So um, what is your level of confidence, skepticism, however you want to put it, um, that the crowd was infiltrated with many uh, Antifa types, right? I mean, they're, cause I mean, they're, there are so many different ways that people talk about this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, President Trump really wants to make it sound like there's a fifth column of well-funded, maybe by Soros, yeah. uh, you know, you know, interlopers, and that it's an organized domestic terror organization. And then there's, um, there are other people who say it's not that organized, but they are a problem. Um, I'm just, I'd probably be there, closer to there. Um and then there are other people who just say it's sort of a myth. Could you tell on the ground one way or the other? No, I mean, I, I, you are bringing back my memories from April and early May when every single newspaper ran the the shady money behind the anti-lockdown protests. So like, yeah, 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 yeah. on our side, we have, uh, you know, the I shouldn't say on our side, but generally on the right, we have conspiracy theories spread by Facebook and the president. And on the left, they have conspiracy theories spread by the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, yeah. But I think, I think uh, there were people there who were there to cause trouble and hoping to stoke uh, the anger into violence. Um, so the one group that I saw closest was a group five people, probably about all, all black males, probably at about age 20. <clears throat> so it, w my interactions with them, including them threatening violence against me for filming them throwing eggs, um, would not ever lead me to believe that they were part of some organized group. It was five kids mm -hmm. who were like, let's go down there and cause some real trouble. And Antifa is that plus a message board is the way that I yeah. see it. Um, and um, maybe the message board emboldens them to be a little more violent. The the guys I was dealing with never actually punched anybody and never did anything more than throw eggs at uh, guys with plastic shields and masks and, you know, people they weren't actually going to harm. Um, so I'm always very skeptical of conspiracy theories.
for the same reason everybody who's been in Washington for a while is <laughs> we don't believe that anybody has the, the capability to carry these things off. Um, and every story I've seen that there were well-placed piles of rocks and bricks and that sort of thing, everyone that's kind of been investigated to any uh, depth has been debunked. So something like this will happen over the message boards. There's some sort of plan. There could be sharing of tactics for here's how to isolate a cop so you could actually beat him up. Um, right. And But I wouldn't, but that's, you can't call it an organization, I think, when it's, uh, you know, probably a few message boards is the extent yeah. of the, the planning. I do get the sense that in places like Portland, um, there is more actual organization. And, yeah. and when I say organization, better messenger board message boards yeah. and you know and like actual coffee shops that are dedicated to yeah. letting antifa types talk about this stuff openly that kind of thing because when you go there there are parts of downtown portland that just feel like they are run by a couple different versions of the gangs from escape from new york <laughs> um, i mean no one on roller skates in the subway but it's 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 weird uh in in downtown portland and in 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 ways that it's not in almost any other place that I've ever been. Yeah. I can't, I can't speak for the West coast. I try to avoid it. So, um, uh, besides you remember the baseball furies, right? <laughs> Wasn't that your, <laughs> I, I um, was in the Irish Catholic gang from that, uh, uh, gang. What, what was movie. Oh, uh, the, uh, dead rabbits. <laughs> Is that what it was? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, you seem to share with me um, a certain amount of vexation with the way um, the broader epidemiological community <laughs> has uh, behaved in recent months. Oh gosh, um, where where is it? What is your current state of thinking? And do you want the last epidemi epidemiologist to be hung with the entrails of the last public health official? No. Um, so one thing, the analogy, let's make the analogy to like climate change, where you'd be like, well, even this climatologist agrees that Amendment 4221 to the Waxman-Markey bill is desperately needed to prevent a 20-foot. Your expertise is in the relationship of this part of the climate to this bird species. You don't get to right. tell us what legislation to pass. And Justin Amash basically said that and got skewered for saying that. I think it was in early May saying, these epidemiologists look at the way viruses spread. Their job is not to care about our lives. Like, so the when I was working for Bob Novak back when he put in his column, the name Valerie Plame, uh, you know, mm -hmm. who worked for the CIA. And his, eventually, when all three of his sources called him and said, I have personally signed a disclosure, like saying that you are allowed to talk to federal investigators about what we said. And like, it was very clear that his sources had already discussed all of it. And Novak was under threat of prosecution by these federal investigators trying to figure out if somebody broke the law. Novak finally went and spoke to the federal investigators. And then his lawyer said, whatever you do, don't tell anybody this. Don't talk about the case at all. 
And so U.S. senators would go on the floor and like say false things, say Novak got a special deal where he didn't have to talk while, you know, Jonathan Cooper had to talk and blah, blah, blah. And they uh, so all this, his whole life becomes much worse because he listened to his lawyers. Mm -hmm. And then he thought about it afterwards. He told me, he said, my lawyers were looking after my legal like health and that talking could make me go from 1% to 2% more likely to get in legal trouble for this. But they weren't looking at my whole life. So my life became 50% worse for my mm-hmm. for one percentage point gain on the legal front. That's the way I see epidemiologists. They're willing to destroy our lives if they're put in charge because all they care about is the, is the epidemic. But actual scientists know, well, I can't tell you whether going to church is safe. I can tell you that indoor spread, dada, dada, dada. They can give us right. facts on the ground. And Justin Amash on Twitter said, these people can't be given a broader, uh, a broader, uh, a bigger reign than just saying, here's how it spreads. And politicians were constantly outsourcing their decision-making to epidemiologists in order to, uh, out of their own cowardice. And the result was <clears throat> overbearing, lockdowns. But then epidemiologists decide that cost-benefit analysis is worthwhile when it jives with their politics. And that was what drove me crazy. Because I was ready to say so many of these guys are scientists. They're not actually saying that we need to outlaw Little League and T-ball. But then they really were saying we need to outlaw everything but their protests. That some religious outdoor events were okay if they were for the, uh, the religion of wokeism. Yeah. And, and we, we should be clear about this. I, uh, I think I can speak for you when I say the people who are protesting the death of George Floyd have a good reason to protest. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a worthy thing to protest, but the idea that somehow these street protests, particularly in day 10, right? So we're not talking about like, everyone's on record about yeah. George Floyd at this point. But the idea that that somehow is a vital moral imperative that they are now trying to argue to claim, to claw back some of their credibility is also an issue of public health. Um, that that is more important than seeing your grandmother before she dies or uh, getting married or, you know, or going to a baptism. I mean, you can come up with a, th- or, or keeping your business afloat. Keeping your business afloat. Um, and the, yeah, the it, Governor Murphy in New Jersey was like joined with snarky liberal Twitter to sum up everything that people lost to the lockdowns as getting your nails done. And this made yeah. me want to like move to New Jersey and run against it. Not that I would ever move <laughs> to New Jersey. Um, or, or, or win running in New Jersey. <laughs> or try to position myself to be well liked by Eagles fans in New Jersey. Um, but, uh, but it made me want to like see him defeat be defeated like the friends who did not get to be with their parents as they died um friends who did not get elective surgeries uh that they needed and there's and you know another three months where they can't walk because their hip surgery didn't happen um and uh people who have lost their businesses and then part of what i argued and think i i showed pretty well in my book was that if you don't have community you are measurably worse off, not just sort of like emotionally or spiritually, 
but physically, fewer people get married, fewer people uh, people find it harder to raise their kids in these lockdowns. I mean, there were huge costs to them. And you and I don't have the expertise to know at what point the cost benefit uh, tipped, but that they just said, well, that one was about getting a haircut. And this one is right. about ending racism. Your protests are not going to end racism. If these protests end racism and end police violence, I will step back and say, okay. Yeah, no, that's my view too. It's like, like if, if this is the silver bullet that does it, Yes. Okay, but like but also, it's also such you a, and I, I think the protests are good. The George Floyd protests. I mean, I I like protests. I like covering them. I like people speaking out. I like people speaking out and saying things they're not supposed to say. I don't like them turning into riots. But I just cannot handle the same people who told us that it was evil to protest against the lockdowns or to even complain about them now telling us the protests are good. Yeah. No. That, and also. The, I mean, I don't like protests, not because I don't approve of protest qua protest. I don't like crowds. I find big crowds. Yeah. I don't like large groups. I come from a school of conservatism that says political enthusiasm is dangerous. This is a, this is um, a very interesting thing, though, um, on the right. So, like, Charles Murray, Walter Olson, you, you guys are all, like, pretty anti crowd. And I understand it too. Mm -hmm. um, and Rod Dreher said something on Twitter of like, I would say the Nicene Creed, but not if somebody came up to me and said, say the creed. And this yeah. was at one point they started saying, hey, journalists, take a knee too. And that's when I exited the crowd. So I kind of get it. But I, I like crowd. Like we go to mass every Sunday and we recite something all together. Like I try to get as many kids as possible on my t-ball team. I Heck, I put a crowd in my own house deliberately as part of my life <laughs> with our six kids. Uh, but there's a lot of conservatives and not just the libertarianist ones. Again, yeah. you're in there, but uh, Walter Olson, Murray are pretty libertarian who really are anti-crowd. Uh, well, being pro-person, I think you're pro-person. Yeah, I'm pro-person. Is it an individualism? Is it a, just a ickiness of being told what to say? Well, it's, it's not. It, it, it's for me. It, I can't speak for Charles and Walter, but for me, it's pre-political. Um, I don't much like concerts mm -hmm. because I, there's something that creeps me out about looking around and everybody's doing the same thing and they're into the same thing. And I will admit, part of it is a misanthropy on my part, and that I, I large groups of people who are inordinately enjoying themselves <laughs> make me nervous. I, 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 it's just who I am. Um, I don't feel it as much at sports, you know, mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, maybe because it's just a, sort of a different aesthetic. I don't know. But um, it just, I, I, and, and I have an overlay of a philosophical approach to this, which is that in the American political tradition, the individual, not the group, is the hero. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean groups aren't important and all that kind of stuff. It's just, there's something about, there's a kind of power worship that comes with liking Large, I'm not saying yeah. you're guilty of it, but there are some people, you know, who, you know, think, you know, who chant really passionately, the people united cannot be defeated. Yeah. Um, and they're chanting this at other Americans. Uh, that kind of stuff, it just creeps me out. No, and I, I do. I do understand that. But um, and I think it's a natural psychological thing. One of my kids is basically that, like, if we're going somewhere, he only wants to go literally off of the beaten path. I was going to take mm -hmm. them to these caves in Pennsylvania, Laurel Caverns or something. And then he saw the flyer and he was like, wait, so somebody has installed lighting and there are walkways and there are tour guides. There's no way I'm doing it. 
And, <laughs> and so that sort of individualism, anti-crowdness, I have a little bit of it and I, I understand it. Um, and, um, but also I do think that, uh, that individualism on the, on the right can harm us by sort of depriving us of seeing the virtue of solidarity. I mentioned solidarity. the flip side of that in, in Catholic teaching is, is solidarity and that we are made better at times by doing exactly what makes you and to some extent me uneasy, which is sort of subjugating our own will, our own desire, our own plans to other people. I mean, heck, this is what marriage is, right? Uh, yes. It's it's surrender. It's you and parenthood. You <laughs> surrender some part of your, your will um, to somebody else. And that, that's at least part of the conservative understanding of, of marriage. It's not, oh, well, we're just such perfect soulmates. We always agree. It's, no, I'm agreeing to, to lay down for this other person. That's what community is, et cetera. Um, so I think the individualism is fine. And I think for you, it's mostly in, and, uh, and Walter Olson even, it's mostly in your own personal writings and not in, I mean, your own personal lives and not in what you're preaching to everybody else. Sorry, yeah, 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 yeah. And also community, but he would rather stand on the edge of, of the crowd. I don't, I just, political passion makes me nervous on the right end and on the left. It just always has. Um, but no, on the thing about family stuff, this has been a talking point of mine for years. I hate the phrase, um, you know, and McCain used to do it about how we need to be dedicated to a cause larger than ourselves. Mm -hmm. And what I hate about it is that it's always defined as basically a relationship between the individual and the state yeah. in, or the government in Washington. And like anybody who's married, anybody who has a kid, um, anybody who has a job, they're dedicated to causes larger exactly than themselves. Right. You know, um, I mean, I take a bullet for my kid. Yeah. Um, and uh, the biggest causes that are larger than yourself have to be, you know, other than God, yeah. have to be cl as close to home as possible. Otherwise, they are really abstract and the more abstract your passions the more abstract the more the uh, more abstract the object of your passions is the more dangerous your politics are as, well, a, as a general so and i think that brings us back to the the lockdowns i realized when i would see comments i would point out this regulation in maryland is ill-fitting it bans outdoor fishing um which is not going to spread the virus at all and some of the reactions were people trying to rationalize oh, well, you could fall in the water, blah, 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 sort of stupid rationalizations. But others were people saying, why aren't you willing to sacrifice for the greater good? And mm -hmm. so I was arguing this regulation doesn't actually help the greater good. But some people right. saw it as an opportunity to give up something that mattered to them for the greater good. And we're all in this together, even though we were forced by law to be apart but you know the face masks on the on the twitter bios and all of this it's like the ribbons it's this solidarity so for a lot of people the sacrifice of the lockdowns provided um endorphins provided good feelings and so mm -hmm. the sacrifice of the lockdowns and joining in the protest are the same thing there were all yeah. doing something that might be a little bit difficult that's for the greater good so a key to understand is that a lot of people who under, who end up in our line of business of writing have a very different psychology about mass events, mass movements than the average person does. Yeah. I mean, related to the, the feeling, these sort of endorphins you get, 
um, the feeling of transcendence of being in a crowd and giving yourself over to a cause. Another thing that sort of can give you that feeling is staying hydrated. And that's why I want to talk about hydrant. No, I mean, I'm kind of serious. You know, 75% of us walk around dehydrated. So when you're out there in the sun fighting for social justice, uh, you're even more likely to be um, dehydrated. And we are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs. Sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. Remember the Simpsons after-school special? Zinc and you, partners in freedom? Well, it's even more true today. These things help you hydrate and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. There are no synthetic colors or artificial sweeteners, and you can choose between three different flavors or a variety pack. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. So for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code Dingo at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com, D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T.com and enter promo code Dingo for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code Dingo. We thank Hydrant for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. I want to circle back to the cavern thing in just two seconds that you mentioned earlier. (laughs) Um, But... uh, this point about people wanting to sort of have the social solidarity of the pandemic, um, I think is a really important one. And um, for a bunch of different crass political reasons, one is that um, I think that that's the reason why the protest thing trumped the pandemic thing is because that is a more tangible feeling yep. of that social solidarity stuff that people are getting from the, from the lockdown. Um, I also think that, some social scientist is going to do amazing research to prove that the intensity of these protests was directly correlated with the boredom that comes from being cooped up for so long. Um, I did I, not to take anything away from the righteousness of the cause, you know, but it just it's, no, it seems and I obvious. Did to see me. a woman uh, maybe 11 p.m. in front of the White House shouting at the police, um, "We're going to be back here tomorrow and the next day." And I forget her exact line. <laughs> I put on Twitter. We don't have anywhere to be. We're in the middle of an <laughs> effing pandemic. <laughs> um, but so you, you raise sort of a point. I, I wrote a comment about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, you've been following the, I mean, do we have an agreed upon term? Because um, Adrian Vermeule got very mad at me for including him in a list of nationalists broadly understood. Yeah, we, um, don't, have a, we don't have a term. Okay, so post-liberals. <laughs> yeah. Post-conservative, anti, yeah, yeah, anti-fusionist, whatever, and I don't, you know, whatever, that, the whole crowd, and you're being, which includes some very, very smart people, like Adrian Vermeule, even though I think his positions are ridiculous, um, and Patrick Dedeen, who I think is a very, very smart guy, and, um, and then uh, just MAGA ditto heads, right? You know, it's a big spectrum. I am hard-pressed to see how they haven't just completely blown it with the pandemic. If you were going to describe on paper 
something short of an actual war, which would involve much less mobilization of the entire country, that fits all of the rhetoric of the smart guys, of Saurabh and Vermeule and Patrick and, um, and even people like Bill Bennett, who is not a nationalist type, but he is a pro-lifer and he's that here you have this situation that is putting many of the most vulnerable, which is like one of the pro-lifers things, right? In jeopardy. Um, It requires sacrifice. It requires organization and direction from a strong leader at the top who's speaking for the entire nation. There is nothing, you correct me if I'm wrong, there's nothing in classical liberal political theory that says that the state cannot exercise its authority in larger than normal ways during a threat like a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you have all the permission structure you need to do this sort of serious, culturally conservative, nationalist, post-liberal, whatever you want to call it, push. And they all whiffed on it. They all just they all started making fun of people who took it seriously. Trump started talking about how and amazingly, Trump started talking about how, you know, the most important thing is to get the economy back going, which for all of these post-liberal types, you yeah. know, the slavery to the, the market is supposed to be bad. Yeah. So, I mean, how, what is your explanation <laughs> of it? Um, I, think, I think you just explained well that this was the moment for people who wanted to shed the procedural guardrails of, uh, of conservatism, etc., And they didn't. So Rusty Reno was the first one out with sort of an essay that had a good point buried in it that was expressed very Mm -hmm. poorly about, uh, or at least came across very poorly, um, where he basically said saving people from dying from a pandemic is is not an absolute good, which is a true statement, but um, it, it was received as saying we should trade the lives of old people for these other goods, which is not a a good way to argue. Um, But sort of buried in that was a pro-life idea. Alexandria de Sanctis said, if you think of death as the sum of all evils, you will have a different attitude towards this, um, towards a pandemic than other people will. She wasn't making any policy prescriptions or anything, but just stating a philosophical point that was important and true. Um, and of course, she got excoriated on, on Twitter for that. So there was a bit of a, it's ironic to say it, but I think you understand it, but there's a bit of a pro-life idea there that, or a, a religious, a supernatural understanding of the world that, frankly, there are some things worth dying for. Now, I don't think a haircut is worth dying for. I don't... Particularly for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, no, it's great. I have the the most consistent hair care routine of any of my friends because it's my <laughs> wife cutting my hair. Um, but that that we need to save if it saves a single life is the argument that liberals use on gun control and that Cuomo used on the pandemic. Um, and that that's just not an argument that conservatives are comfortable with, especially mm-hmm. not um, anybody who believes that anything is worth dying for doesn't believe that we should do everything possible to save every single life. That's the simplest way to put it. Um, but as far as why they didn't uh, step up right away and say, this is, you know, this is the co- common good. Here's a chance to show why state capacity can do it. I don't have a good explanation except to say, again, I think sort of natural psychology explains how people initially reacted to this virus. The people I know who were the earliest lockdowners, literally pulling their kids out of school before the school shut down, 
were, you know, conservative, uh, you know, pretty traditionalist conservative people who now are rallying for the open up. They weren't leftist status. They weren't Adrian yeah. Vermeules. They were, um, it was Michael Brennan Doherty. Doherty was yeah. definitely one of the first ones. And, uh, he convinced me to be a little more wary. I canceled the trip to Ohio at the last minute, partly because of him. Um, and some of that I think is just psychology. I think ideologically we were scattered and it could have just been that the sort of not, caring a lot about this infectious disease just happened to personally be the trait of a handful of these guys is the, the best I can come up with. All right. So uh, in the minutes we have left, we need some rank punditry. Uh, do the Republicans hold on to the uh, Senate? Um, I don't think so. Um, the reason is that at the it used to be when I worked for Novak that every race was like locally determined. But now almost every election is a national election. Um, and the uh, what the polls show is that Trump is at or slightly below where he was in head-to-head polls four years ago, but that Biden is about four to five points ahead of where Hillary Clinton was. So the people right. who said four years ago, Trump won because he was running against the most unlikable woman in America, well, the polls these days are bearing it out. Again, Trump around 42 compared to Hillary around 44, four years ago. It's now Trump around 42 compared to Biden around 48, very consistently all year long. So I think it's a tidal wave that sweeps out the Senate. The other data point, which I haven't really seen many people talk about, so one person on Twitter talk about it, um, is that people forget in 2016, the senators running for real, the Republican senator is running, had coattails for Trump, not the other way around. Mm-hmm. Like Rubio, Portman, most of these guys overperformed Trump by large margins, which yeah. tells you something about, you know, and now a lot of the Republicans who were running are underperforming Trump, yep. which is not a great sign for, for those senators. No. And, and it's not a great sign for Trump either. Um, and so do you think... Do you think, uh, A, do you think if Biden basically stays out of the limelight and Trump keeps exposing the the, the truth about the Buffalo, 75-year-old Buffalo protester, um, that uh, Biden wins? And B, do you think Biden should actually just keep doing basically a front porch campaign? Um, yeah, I think the, the quieter he stays, the better off he is. It's just not possible, though. Um, and he's got such a long record and so many things to attack him on. And the attacks will be about deflating the democratic base, which is already a little bit deflated, but you know, what will reinflate a deflated democratic base, Donald Trump being Donald Trump. I mean, how the the people holding their nose and showing up. Um, and I saw some of the boring democratic candidates make this argument explicitly. Remember Delaney, John Delaney is my congressman here in Maryland. And he said, look, you don't need a candidate who will inspire the Democratic base. Trump will do that. Right. So you may as well pick me who won't turn anybody off because nobody knows about me. And Biden is sort of the, the establishment version of that. That was a good argument. By <laughs> it <the way>. was. <laughs> I think it was a legitimately good argument. I mean, there is, I mean, I, I, I was saying this a couple of weeks ago, the, the, there is something really weird in this argument that the AOC, Bernie crowd, um, insists that you need a real you need a real radical to 
to energize the base. And oh, by the way, another four years of Donald Trump would be an extinction level event that would end. Yeah. That would destroy America for all time. And it's like, so that that second part isn't good enough to get you to go vote. You also need Stacey Abrams on the <laughs> ticket. I mean, that's a weird argument. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. And I just see that. I mean, a huge you could argue that the biggest story of 2016 was low, uh, reduced African-American turnout and a sort of deflated uh, liberal base. And that some of what happened in 2018, when Democrats swing back in places like Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, is that the people who stayed home because they hated Hillary and they thought Trump had no chance of winning were motivated by confronting this actual um, reality of Trump. And so if uh, if black turnout rises to its Obama levels, Trump doesn't win. If it rises to somewhere between the Hillary levels and the Obama levels, I'd have to do the math, but that alone could be enough. And then you throw in a white liberal vote and a slight drop off in the suburban Republican vote that held its nose and voted for Trump. And you can see Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, all flip. That said, you go back four years, read my article headlined, No Trump Can't Win, and then consider my predictions <laughs> that I've just given you. Yeah. Um, all right. So I get asked this question all the time, and I never have an answer that I find satisfactory. Um, what does conservatism slash the GOP look like if Trump, in fact, loses over the next four to Eight years. I mean, so to what extent does he disappear? To what extent does he try to be Grover Cleveland and run again? Um, if he has some opportunity, like he loves the limelight. He's not like a, a, you know, like one of those Republican senators who's going to retire quietly, become a lobbyist and be very happy to be really rich after he loses. Um, he's going to want the limelight. Um, the, you see some movement now by Republicans to distance themselves. Ben Sass criticizing Trump, other Republicans criticizing Trump's comments during some of these protests and the action at the White House. Um, and so that could mean that Republican lawmakers really want to like move on from Trump the second he's gone. And you know there are people who want to like get the gang back together, like just be mm -hmm. like you know the Bill Frist Republican Party. I don't think that can happen because I don't think there are electoral coalitions enough around that. So what I hope will happen is that we'll learn something from Trump. This is what we tried to do with the examiner. We tried to say, we're not going to become Trumpy, but we're not going to be what we were beforehand. Our country is different than we thought it was. We were totally caught off guard by Trump. And so trying to understand nationalism as a conservative idea is one of the things we tried to do. Um, it's a different definition than Josh Hawley's nationalism, but it's certainly something very offensive to the left, which is that the U.S. government ought to be serving U.S. interests and not either abstract ideas or, you know, the interests of the elite ruling class. And so that little populist nationalism, I do think, can be uh, crafted into an intelligent way to tweak uh, conservative policies. That uh, Who's doing the best job of that by your lights? Because, I mean... I'd be interested to know, you're, you're libertarian inflected, you're, yeah. you know, the Export-Import export Bank was your white whale. Yeah. So, like, who do you think is doing that well? Um, I mean, I think Justin Amash, who's not a Republican, <laughs> uh, puts it well. <laughs> um, I think uh, Rubio is is trying 
Now Rubio's all over the place a lot of times, but I think he's he's trying. I think Holly is uh, way too erratic with bad ideas, um, but he's at least pushing in that direction. But there's nobody now that I would say is uh, especially doing it well. If I had to pick a senator, um, somewhere between you know Rubio and Lee is is where the the sweet spot would be. And, that, and you're not saying that you would necessarily agree with them. I, I think again, I think a nationalism um, in a nationalism inflected conservatism, I would agree with. But nationalism has meant so many things, and it's often an excuse just for bad policy when Hawley talks about it. But um, to say very explicitly, our immigration policy is going to be steered towards improving the lives of Americans, just to begin that way trigger the libs by saying that yeah. and also say, you know what, we need um, more immigrants in a lot of ways in order to improve the lives of current immigrants. Um, I think that that could be beneficial. The problem, one of the problems is that the Republican voters have always had a choice between the country club set. Well, they never, they only had the country club set. And then finally they were given Trump, which was sort of mainlining some of the populism that I was pitching back when Romney was a candidate. And so if you get somebody who can bring some of the populism, some of the nationalism, but the conservative guardrails at the same time, I think that would be a way to the sort of Hegelian dialectic, the next step from Romney to Trump to whoever it would be next. Um, oh, so one last thing. You, before you mentioned uh, Laurel, Laurel Caverns. Yeah. Yeah, they're not in Pennsylvania. They're in Virginia, right? Aren't they? You know what? Yeah, uh, I, 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 I gave the wrong name. Laurel Caverns is in Virginia. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because um, have you have you ever been? No. Okay, you should take your kids. Okay. They're legit cool. Um, but there is something that is so horrible. There are two things that are just truly horrible about it. I mean, truly, one just terrifying. The other one, a violation of all that is right. Um, the terrifying one is there's a spot where um, some Native American, like 600 years ago, just was walking in a field and went through a sinkhole and fell into the cavern and died of starvation in there. Oh, my God. And it's like, you imagine walking around on a beautiful sunny day, and then you fall in this place with these stalactites and stalagmites (laughs) all over the place and this weird, creepy light that is only coming from... You would be totally forgiven <laughs> for thinking that you'd just gone to hell, like immediately gone to hell. Yeah. And like I've I've thought about that in my sort of claustrophobic <laughs> kind of thing ever since. It freaks me out. Like few things I've physically done in my life freak uh-huh. me out is the whole thing. And if you ever go, you'll see what I mean. And the other thing that will make you hate rich white people from the 1920s more than you already did um, uh, as a good Irishman is that they would invite hoi polloi types, not hoi polloi, yeah. but, you know, society people, and to see the caverns, which really are spectacular and really cool and all that. And as a party gift, they would allow guests to rip off a mid-sized stalag- stalactite yeah, from the yeah. top, right? Um, that had only taken 900,000 years to form. <laughs> So they bring it home. And so there's this one area near the entrance that just has hundreds of stumps of stalactites. And it's just like, I got mine. Who cares about like posterity (laughs) kind of thing? (laughs) It just makes me want to like go find some flapper and strangle. There you go. We made Jonah (laughs) a populist. 
<laughs> anyway, uh, Tim, I hope you get your uh, T-ball league back up and running. Thank you. I um, do too. Uh, the, I think that was a huge blow for civil society when that got closed down. And I hope we can have lunch again, actually, in person at AEI. Yes, one day again, we will have uh, the things called, you know, personal encounters. Um, Tim Carney, the book is... Alienated America. Alienated America. I keep, I always want to say Alien Nation, even no. though the book is right over there in my <laughs> yeah. bookshelf. Uh, because that was a really weird TV show with Mandy Patinkin and James Caan on Fox. Um, anyway, it's a great book. Great to have you. Thanks for coming back. Thanks, Jonah. Okay, so it's always good to have Tim Carney on. I know he does not count as one of the people that we've long tried to get on here and finally could because of the pandemic, because um, this was like his fourth time on. But um, he's good people, and uh, we're glad to have him. So uh, lots of um, lots of buzz and traffic around uh, the dispatch over the weekend. Um, my G file, which I kind of screwed up one thing in it, you know, I've been talking about uh, Julian Benda and the treason of the intellectuals or the treason of the clerks and the original French version for a while now. And I called this thing the treason of the epidemiologists. And I actually didn't explain where the headline came from. So I think a lot of new people who came to it were like thinking I was saying something other than what I was. Uh, but still, uh, it was one of the most read things um, we've ever had on a dispatch. And so was David's uh, Sunday... French press about racism in America and uh, his new understanding or appreciation for the nature of the problem um, since he has a African-American daughter. Um, I highly recommend reading David's piece. Um, but if you're going to subscribe to the dispatch, I highly recommend doing it after you read my piece because then those subscription, those pay memberships go towards my stats and not David's. And that's, that's you know, it's vitally important. Um, beyond that, uh, we have some exciting um, first-timers coming up on the podcast this coming week. I'll more about that later. And, um, or I should say weeks. And uh, other than that, I really don't have too much else. So uh, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Sure.